The Cell Phone Junkie Podcast, episode 455 for February 22nd, 2015. Carriers speak out on the latest AWS Spectrum auction, T-Mobile claims to have overtaken Sprint as the number three U.S. carrier, and public betas coming to iOS. My name is Mickey Papillon. And I'm Joey Coppice. Brought to you each week by the Cell Phone Junkie podcast application, available now for Android, iOS, and Windows Phone 8 for $1.99. Kicking things off this week with some news from Friday, the world's largest SIM card maker found itself at the center of a new hacking scandal the week after The Intercept reported a SIM card maker had compromised, had been compromised, that is, by the NSA and the UK's government communications headquarters. The Intercept claims that US and British spy services stole the encryption keys for SIM cards so that they'd be able to secretly monitor cell phone users around the world. With the keys in hand, the agencies could snoop around completely undetected by the targets on their net- and their network operators and could do so without warrants. SIM cards are protected by light encryption only to prevent fraud but not hacking. Possessing the encryption keys to the cards allowed the agencies to bypass the built-in security measures completely. In order to do this, the agencies monitored uh, Gemalto employees and eventually broke into their computer systems. The hacks took place in 2010, and Gemalto was completely unaware of the breach until they were contacted recently by The Intercept. Now, the company issued a statement saying that Gemalto is vigilant against malicious hackers and has detected, logged, and mitigated many types of attempts over the years. They say, at present, we cannot prove a link between these past attempts and what was reported yesterday. We take this publication very seriously and will devote the resources necessary to fully investigate and understand the scope of such sophisticated techniques. Gemalto ships about 2 billion SIM cards each year, and they are headquartered in the Netherlands, but have a large office in Texas and a manu- manufacturing plant in Pennsylvania. AT&T, Sprint, T-Mobile, and Verizon all use Gemalto SIM cards in their mobile devices, as do 450 other mobile network operators around the world. The Intercept's report is based on documents released by the NSA leaker Edward Snowden. So what does this actually mean? Well, probably not a lot to you and I, but it does mean that there's the potential of uh, more information, of course, than you want going out there could be going out there. Yeah, and it's just, you know, one more thing that we've seen here in this whole, uh, you know, monitoring and logging and tracking uh, aspects to mobile phones. It's just it's just one more sign that if you're doing anything nefarious, that uh, having any sort of mobile device with you is really not a good idea. Well, and especially if you if you look at, well, who is using these SIM cards? It's basically everybody is using these cards. And so don't uh, expect to to be, you know, with, I guess, a carrier. If you think that maybe one of the smaller carriers isn't susceptible to it, the vast majority of mobile networks around the world are using these SIM cards. So interesting stuff here. I'm uh, not sure we'll hear much more about it, but uh, that was uh, something that kind of came out this week and we all went, wow, that's that's pretty interesting stuff. AT&T on Wednesday increased the data offerings of its two GoPhone plans. Subscribers to the $45 monthly plan will have 1.5 gig of high-speed data instead of the previous 1 gig. And subscribers to the $60 plan will now have 4 gigs of data instead of the previous 2.5. That data increase is available at no extra cost and is effective immediately. 
Verizon on Wednesday said it doesn't believe that it will need to make any more large Spectrum acquisitions following the results of the recent AWS 3 auction. Verizon obtained 181 Spectrum licenses at a cost of $10.4 billion. The licenses cover 192 million pops, or about 60% of Americans. Following the auction, Verizon now has 40 megahertz of AWS Spectrum, covering 95% of the country's major markets, and 60 megahertz of mid-band Spectrum, covering about 84% of the population. For now, the company will focus on making the most efficient use possible of its existing Spectrum resources, and says only small Spectrum purchases should be necessary in the in the foreseeable future. Verizon said carrier aggregation will also help out a lot, and indicated that small cell deployments will further fill in a lot of the gaps. Verizon also said it plans to more aggressively refarm its PCS Spectrum, converting it from the 3G over to LTE services. Verizon's winnings ranked third in the AWS 3 auction, behind AT&T's $18 billion spend and Dish Network's $13 billion spend. Meanwhile, T-Mobile CEO John Ledger says that consumers should help to guide the FCC's rulemaking process for the upcoming Spectrum auctions, including the one for the 600 megahertz band that we should see here next year. Ledger hopes consumers will write to the FCC and ask that the agency create rules that will lead to more competition. He pointed out that the recent AWS Spectrum auction was a disaster for American wireless consumers, and as proof, he said that AT&T and Verizon, or the Twin Bells as he calls them, won the bulk of the Spectrum auctioned off by the FCC. Ledger says that this can't happen with the 600 megahertz auction, which is for valuable low-band spectrum. Three companies alone, said Ledger, spent an insane $42 billion between them, grabbing a ridiculous 94% of the spectrum sold at the auction. He said this whole thing should scare you and every other wireless consumer in the U.S. because there's another important auction coming up next year, and the results have to be different if wireless competition is going to survive. Ledger wants the FCC to reserve 40 megahertz, or at least half of the available spectrum for companies other than AT&T and Verizon. And he further wants the government to mandate the auction winners use the spectrum to provide mobile services rather than allow it to be collected and traded like financial securities. Now, there is still a big winner. AT&T also commented on the auction, accusing Dish Networks of creating artificial demand for Spectrum and raising prices in that auction. Dish did not bid itself on the auction and instead had three smaller companies participate on its behalf. The Dish entities acting in concert triple and double bid licenses in the auction nearly 4,000 times, said AT&T. They said during one round of the auction, because of their triple bidding tactics, Dish's entities collected collectively had close to $30 billion in bids, while their actual financial exposure was only one-third of that. None of this suggests independent uh, independent dis- decision-making by either of the bidders, which ultimately won over $13.3 billion worth of the licenses, and they also got a $3.3 billion discount for being a small business. Now, this conduct circumvented auction activity rules, masked actual demand, and distorted the auction, and as a result, Dish and the corporate entity won no licenses, but the dish, uh, the dish company itself will enjoy a 25% discount because of the substantial allocations that they had. Now, earlier in the month, FCC Commissioner um, Ajit Pai made a similar complaint and said that Dish's tactics made a mockery of the auction, and they both called the FC called to the FCC to review their practices. 
Dish, however, said it has complied with all the rules and disclosed its bidding plans before the auction took place. That $18 that AT&T spent was still the most out there. Rival AT- uh, Verizon, as we mentioned, spent $10 billion, and uh, the, the amount Dish spent after the reductions was right around $10 billion. Um, the overall auction itself, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, generated $41 billion in winning bids. That's four times the $10.5 billion in reserve bidding that was set by the FCC. So again, what does this all mean? Well, you know, as we've gone through things here, so the AWS spectrum is spectrum that's located in the in the high uh, 1000. So it's in the, the 1700 megahertz band. And uh, this spectrum itself is is relatively good for dense areas. You can use it to fill in um, in, in outside of the the general spectrum that's being used for the kind of the I'll call it the the baseline uh, LTE services. And so that's why AT and T and Verizon wanted it because they've already got the 700 megahertz deployments. They're starting to do deployments on their PCS spectrum, and this helps to fill the rest of that in. And as the demand continues to grow, this is all mo- all the more important for them to get the spectrum ahead of it all, so they're not trying to play catch up. Um, um, it's a uh, it's a very interesting process that we've we've kind of seen play out here. Forty one billion dollars was spent here, uh, and uh, Verizon has said, "You look, we're done for a while. We've we've got plenty of stuff here." Yeah, and what's interesting, you know, they they mentioned in here is you know it, it being collected and traded like financial securities, and that's kind of what it is. It's basically you know real estate of the airwaves, and you've got this uh, spectrum that you own, and you can hold on to it and kind of uh, you know kind of deal with it what you want, just kind of like what uh, Sprint has done. They've got a massive amount of spectrum with Clearwire, and it's not being used presently. And the the, the notion that they should uh, build something out on it right away is uh, you know seems a little onerous but then on the flip side um why why don't they have to build out on it because you know they don't we want to have increased competition here oh i think so and i you know interestingly sprint wasn't mentioned at all in here they weren't really part of uh part of what was what came out of this whole thing um you know and, and if you look at where sprint is um let, let me just jump right into the next piece of this here sprint is still launching lte and markets that i i couldn't believe that they didn't have lte service in they announced 24 new markets and also additional spark service markets this week the company's lte footprint now reaches and so keep in mind these are all markets that they did not have lte in until recently uh they're up to 270 million pops now these new markets include flagstaff arizona maui and the big island of hawaii Thousand Oaks, Ventura, Santa Barbara, and Santa Maria, California, and get this, Washington, D.C., and Arlington and Alexandria, Virginia. Also, the Spark markets, which uh, will help to enhance the capacity and, and make the services better, include Camden, New Jersey, Nashua, New Haven, and Milford, Connecticut, Norfolk, Virginia Beach, and Newport News, Virginia, Peoria, Illinois, Providence, Rhode Island, and Spokane, Washington. Sprint says it will add Spark coverage to Atlanta, Boston, Las Vegas, Nashville, Portland, San Francisco, San Jose, and Washington, D.C., later this month. So again, looking back at it here, you've got, sure, you've got Sprint that's got all this these holdings here, but they're still trying to roll out stuff here. And they're doing so in a, I'll just say a much slower fashion than uh, AT&T or Verizon are. So they still have a lot of work ahead of them uh, to get to kind of their, their, you know, so their base or their, you know, kind of their, the, the overall LTE network impl- implemented, and then they can start doing stuff with the Spark network. 
Yeah, they've just been falling behind, really. And, uh, you know, this is obviously nothing new. It's been, it seems to just be getting worse and worse as time goes on. Yeah, well, I guess it's just not getting better is, is where I would, would characterize it, is that they're not catching up in, in the speed that they need to be at this point. Other Sprint news, Boost Mobile on Friday introducing a new add-on for its service plans that provides unlimited calling to landlines and mobile phones in Mexico. It's called the Toto Mexico plan and costs $5 a month, added on to a Boost $45 or $55 data boost plan. In additional, addition to unlimited calling to Mexico, the Toto Mexico plan includes unlimited calling to Canada and international text messaging. Boost's move could be viewed as a response to recent changes made by AT&T, which now offers free calling to Mexico through its Cricket and GoPhone prepaid brands. Sprint on Friday also announcing a new option in the range of its family share pack plans. Customers can get up to 10 lines with unlimited talk, text, and 12 gigs of high-speed data to share for $90 a month. Sprint has dropped the per-line smartphone access charge from $25 a month to $15 a month, and will also waive access charges completely for a period of one year if you port your number in from another carrier. Tablets cost $10 per line, and mobile broadband devices are $20 a line. Sprint is also still offering to pay the early termination fees for customers who break their service contract and switch over to Sprint at up to $350 per line for a four-line four maximum. All devices must be purchased through the Sprint Easy Pay or Sprint iPhone for Life plan. And while it's not mentioned anywhere in T-Mobile's Q4 earnings report during the carrier's live earnings call, John Ledger declared that it has surpassed Sprint as the nation's third largest carrier. Ledger put his own take on Sprint's stagnant growth in recent years, saying going into 2013, Sprint had 55 million customers. Going into 2014, they had 55 million customers. Going into this year, they have 55 million customers. And in that period, they've lost 3.3 million postpaid customers as well. T-Mobile, by contrast, has seen dramatic growth spurred by its uncarrier initiatives and acquisition of MetroPCS. T-Mobile had 33 million customers, then merged with MetroPCS and went up to 42 million customers. And since the merger has added 13 million customers to gain, guess what, 55 million million customers. That makes it sound like the two are tied, but Ledger hinted that Sprint is using some questionable tactics so that it can continue including inactive MVNO customers when reporting its customer base. The two are in a dead heat right now, but Ledger claims that by the next quarter or two, T-Mobile's leapfrogging of Sprint will be even more clear. In other news uh, related to that earnings call, after posting 2.1 million net additions in Q4 2014, T-Mobile gained a total of 8.3 million total net subscribers in the the whole of 2014. Uh, more importantly, these two uh, of these 8.3 million additions, 4 million of them were branded postpaid customers, where uh, have average than uh, higher than average revenue per user than the prepaid phone subscribers. Although T-Mobile's earnings have been very up and down, the company was actually very profitable for the year, posted a net income of $247 million last year. That's 31 cents a share. That contrasts favorably to uh, 2013 when they eked out a profit of only $35 million or $0.05 cents a share. Finally, T-Mobile's biggest pain point remains its mobile network, although it has improved over the past year, and its LTE network now reaches 265 million pops, with the, the total goal of 300 million pops by the end of 2015 still very much in sight. On to some device news here. The Wall Street Journal this week reported details about the Apple Watch and that the fact that they wanted to make it um, even more interesting but couldn't do due to technical limitations. Also, there was a reported sales plan and pricing plan for the upcoming Apple Watch that were leaked. Uh, according to the publication, Apple's preparing a 5 million to 6 million unit production run in the first quarter of this year ahead of the Apple Watch's April launch. Half of those units will be the entry-level $349 Apple Watch Sport models. 
The mid-tier version of the device was expected to amount for about another third of the orders, and the more expensive Apple Watch Edition is expected to be available in small numbers during launch. However, there's also an 18-karat gold model, which could retail for more than $4,000. Some are even expecting it to go over $10,000. Apple apparently plans to make more than 1 million Apple Watch Edition units per month in the second quarter of the year. Of course, Apple often changes plans quickly, and the report is largely based on speculation. So that report about all the extra sensors that they wanted to have in there, it, it, yeah, maybe they wanted to, maybe they're thinking about it, maybe they're planning it for the future, which to me seems more likely. You know, they already have the pulse sensor in it, and of course it monitors motion and, and things like that and activity level. Uh, Apple is not usually one to overwhelm the consumer with all kinds of things, especially in the first go-around. I mean, remember the first iPhone, just, just edged. A lot of things that uh, were current at the time were not included in the first iPhone. And, you know, to me, it just seems like it, it, it's something they probably maybe thought about, maybe considered and probably have, are planning for future versions. Well, I'm, you know, I'm kind of been watching this one closely here. I'm, I'm expecting that I will be picking one of these devices up when it's launched. Um, I have no real interest in a $4,000 watch. I have very little interest in a $1,000 watch. Um, and 350 is even more than I generally spend on a watch. So um, I think there's, um, you know, it's it's not going to be just a, you know, let's call it an impulse buy. It's going to be something where I'm going to take a look and see what's available and see what see what you get for the cost and then ultimately make the decision based on, on that. But I also think that um, there's something to this here. I'm very excited about seeing it. I'm excited about trying it out. Obviously, we had a, a review last week uh, of a uh, of a wearable, and we heard you know a lot of the interesting things that you can do about it, do with it. Uh, so I'm excited to try all that out. However, um, it, as Joey mentions, it's a first gen product, and I'm very wary of these, uh, as you know, you saw with the first generation iPhone, iPad, anything that uh, that Apple makes, and really anyone makes. It's the first generation of it, and it changes a lot in the next couple of versions. So um, you have to know that going into it, that you're going to be faced with something that is going to be technologically obsolete very quickly. And so spending $4,000, $10,000 on an Apple Watch that, uh, you know, is, is not a Rolex. I mean, this is, you're not talking about something that is timeless. I mean, it is, is very much a point in time as far as the technology that's out there. There's a battery in the thing, for crying out loud, that has to be recharged every day. Uh, hopefully they can get that stuff squared away. So, uh, again, speculation, all sorts of different things here. But I would imagine that we're going to see this continuing uh, to pop up in the news as we go over the next month or so. And uh, the final uh, launching, of course, happening sometime in April. Other device news, AT&T on Monday said it will begin selling the BlackBerry Passport and BlackBerry Classic smartphones uh, starting this past Friday, February 20th. Both handsets will be available with contract and monthly payment options. The BlackBerry uh, BlackBerry Passport and Classic both run BlackBerry OS 10.3 and, of course, the new 10.3.1, which we'll talk about in a bit, and include touchscreens and a QWERTY keyboard for typing. LG on Monday unveiled the Urbane, or, or, Urban, uh, the latest smartwatch based on Google's Android Wear platform. The Urbane is most most interesting feature is its design, trading a plastic shell seen on the LG G Watch for a metallic enclosure that comes in either gold or stainless steel. The Urbane has a thinner profile than the G Watch R, giving it a classier, polished look for both men and women. Specs are almost identical to the G Watch, including the 1.3 inch 320 by 320 uh, P OLED display, Qualcomm 1.2 gigahertz uh, Snapdragon 400 processor. 
512 megs of RAM and 4 gigs of storage. It has a 410 milliamp hour battery and sensors for tracking motion and other vital signs. It's uh, protected from water and dust thanks to the IP67 rating. LG said more details such as pricing and availability will be announced market by market later this year. In software news, Microsoft on Tuesday rolled out an update for its Office applications for iOS devices, bringing the ability to save to iCloud in all three apps. The update is available for Microsoft's Word, Excel, and PowerPoint. Users will be prompted to update to Apple's new iCloud Drive feature to take full advantage if they haven't already. The update will allow users to open, edit, and save documents to and from iCloud, but you won't be limited in file types. For example, text edit documents, or you will be limited. Text edit documents stored in iCloud will be viewed but not available to open for edits in the application. The iCloud support, however, will allow users to take advantage of iCloud storage opposed to perhaps by having to buy one of Microsoft's OneDrive cloud storage services. So uh, long and the short of it here is you can now sync all of your Office documents over to iCloud Drive if you so choose to. On the Dropbox side, iPhone and iPad applications for the service got more powerful with a new version this week with an action extension for iOS 8. This allows you to save information from various applications to Dropbox on iOS without having to open the application itself. For example, you can send photos directly to Dropbox from the iOS Photos application, making uploading images to the cloud service easier than before. You can also use the new action extension to save text files to Dropbox, but uh, entries Uh, or entries you create in the iOS Notes application. For files uh, you come across on the web, like PDFs from websites, the Open In Action will now include a Dropbox in there as well for creating a more desktop-like experience. Now to take advantage of the new action, uh, you you must have the latest version of Dropbox installed. That's version 3.7. Open an image in the Photos application, tap on the Share button, uh, and uh, then scroll to the far right on the bottom row of gray icons. This is where I went wrong. I didn't realize it was the gray ones. Gray icons icons, tap more, and then look for save to Dropbox, toggle the switch on, and then you will have the ability to use save to Dropbox in those activities. The iOS 8 Dropbox share extension should now appear for any application that supports it, including photos, notes, files, and Safari, and more. In addition to the new share extension, Dropbox already supports a number of other iOS 8 specific features, including touch ID and authenticating through iCloud Drive. Google Play Music for iOS has been updated as well this week and now available for the iPad for the first time. The app has received some updates to its material design interface. Artists and album pages have been revamped, adding new descriptions for their subjects. The now playing screen has been updated to be more immersive and other small visual changes have been made throughout the app. There has also been improvements to streaming and automatic caching. Music playback should also now be faster and more reliable. You can download either of the applications free from the App Store. Google on Thursday releasing versions of its Inbox application that work with Android tablets and the iPad. The app, which can be used instead of Gmail, was previously limited to smartphones. In addition to support for tablets, Google also made Inbox available for desktop versions of Firefox and Safari. It was previously limited to Chrome on the desktop. Inbox categorizes emails into certain groups, which Google says helps people reach important messages quicker. Inbox is free to download from the iTunes App Store and Google Play Store. Online productivity tool IFTTT, which stands for If This Then That, recently launched three new mobile applications called Do Camera, Do Button, and Do Note. The apps offer different ways for users to connect to a number of different online services via custom-created conditional statements or recipes. Each of these new IFTTT apps allows the use of up to three custom recipes at one time. So for example, launching the Do Camera could allow you 
to uh, upload a photo to a specific Facebook album in one tap, send your family and friends pictures over Gmail, or quickly snap receipts and important documents to Evernote. The Do Button application can be used with recipes to perform tasks like quickly setting your Nest thermostat to 70 degrees, keeping track of your time and location in a Google Drive spreadsheet, and turning on or off your Philips Hue lights with a tap. Finally, the Do Note application will allow users to add features like uh, creating events in Google Calendar, saving short notes in Evernote on the fly, and sharing a tweet on Twitter with just one tap. In addition, the main IFTTT application has a new name. It's now just called IF or IF. The company stated that this rebranding kicks off an evolution for IFTTT for a company with a single service to a company with multiple products, Do and IF. The more uh, uh, with more on the way. Now, uh, if you have never used IFTTT, it's a really interesting service. I use it for all sorts of uh, different things. I think we've talked about it in the past, but um, the, of these new applications, I tried them all out. The only one that I actually find is that does a lot for me is the Do button, and it's got one specific really interesting use that I really like it. So, like it for. So um, it is it is one that you can add to your notification center. It, it does have that ability. And so with a single button press, I can now send a text message uh, to my wife with a preset, uh, you know, string of text in there. And what it says is on the way home. So literally I don't even have to unlock my phone anymore. I just, I just slide down from the top, go and hit the button and it automatically sends a text message to her. And to me, that's a, that's a really powerful thing. Um, I'm regularly, you know, obviously on the, you know, running out the door when I'm going home from work or coming back from the grocery store or whatever it is. And I just want to let her know I'm on the way. And that's all I want to do. I don't need to say anything else in it. So you just have that preset that string of characters in there and it automatically sends it. So check this out if you haven't ever before. IFTTT allows you to do a million different things. It's it's very, very functional. In fact, I go in there every couple of months and I'm just amazed at the number of things that they keep adding. And to do that quick little text message, Mickey, usually I use Siri for that. Uh, you just press and hold and just say reply to and then, uh, you know, on my way. And that's how I usually send those quick ones. Yeah, well, let me just put it this way. So from this point right now, touch the button on my phone, swipe up and boom, done. It's that quick. And, and there's all sorts of different things that you can do with this. Um, they, there's one of the other things that I was I had added for a while was the a quick snap of a receipt and have it uploaded over to Evernote. But the issue that I found with that was because it's just using the camera, it's not actually using the Evernote application for the processing of it. It, it doesn't, um, Evernote kind of, it, it takes the, the colors into uh, consideration and so it it like um, it accentuates the blacks on the page and it actually crops out the page into a perfect you know a perfect sheet and it does all sorts of different formatting for you and it does not do this and so I, I appreciate having that so I will just as easily use that extension on the notification center for Evernote to click on camera and it's it's about two seconds more but it's it's actually not that that much more off so anyway interesting stuff here from IFTTT check those apps out if you haven't already. Other software news, Pebble has updated its smartphone, uh, smartwatch operating system and Android application over the past few days, giving the wearable the ability to interact with Android Wear notifications. Users will need to make sure that they have Pebble OS 2.9 installed on their watch and version 2.3 of the Pebble Android application installed on their phone. Together, these will allow users to reply and act on incoming notifications, set user-defined responses, and send messages through any Android-based SMS application. Pebble is the first non-Android Wear 
first smartwatch that uh, that's able to work with Google's wearable platform. The updated Pebble Android application also resolves an issue with WhatsApp notifications and fixes a handful of other bugs. The updated Pebble OS makes devices compatible with Android handsets running systems as old as Android 4.0 Ice Cream Sandwich. Both the app and OS are free to install. BlackBerry this week releasing BlackBerry OS 10.3.1 for device owners to download. The latest version of BlackBerry's OS includes the Amazon App Store for Android apps and brings back keyboard shortcuts to devices with physical keyboards. The OS, with which improves BlackBerry Blend, which is a desktop messaging client, BlackBerry Assistant, voice commands, BlackBerry Hub, adding instant actions, and the calendar application, adding a meeting mode. The update also improves battery life and camera performance. BlackBerry 10.3.1, available to the BlackBerry Q5, Q10, Z3, Z10, Z30, Porsche Design P9983, and of course, the Passport. And in an effort to eliminate bugs from the upcoming iOS versions ahead of their general releases, Apple is planning to launch the first ever public beta program for the iOS operating system. Now, according to multiple sources with insight on the plans following the successful launch of the OS X public beta program with OS X Yosemite this past year, Apple intends to release the upcoming iOS 8.3 as a public beta via the company's existing Apple Seed program in mid-March. The release will match the third iOS 8.3 beta for developers, which is planned for release the same week. Apple is expected to debut iOS 9 in its June Worldwide Developer Conference with a public beta release during the summer and a final release in the fall. Codenamed Stoey, iOS 8.3 was first seeded to developers in early February with several enhancements. The updated software includes support for wireless car play an upgraded emoji keyboard, an enhanced voice for Siri, and a simpler login for Google services. A second 8.3 beta is expected next week. iOS 9, codenamed Monarch, will include fixes and performance enhancements uh, as headline features. Apple is also working on iOS 8.4, codenamed Copper, which bundles Apple's all-new streaming music service. Like the earlier iOS 8 developer builds, the public betas will include a dedicated application that allows users to report bugs to Apple. The main goal of the iOS beta program will be to give a more reliable and widely tested operating system by the time the wider customer launch comes out, as Apple has come under fire with a lack of quality control in iOS 8. Publicly launching beta versions of iOS will also reduce the demand for unauthorized sales of beta downloads from developer accounts, which enabled some customers to test drive Feature, uh, future iOS features. So uh, this is good stuff here, I think. You know, obviously, I've done the beta program before. It has been a couple of versions since I've done it, though. But it's um, it's it's kind of an interesting thing to see the bleeding edge features and all the changes that they've made. But keep in mind, there's still going to be a lot of things that you're gonna that, that are not fully baked in these 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 OSs. Absolutely, but it's uh, nice to see a public beta go. You know, it's one thing having a version for developers, which I know you weren't, you're not really a developer, and that's where we should really keep the developer programs, you know, for developers, not just have people beta testing uh, in general, because what happens is, you know, Apple thinks they've got all these, uh, you know, developers that are actually maybe looking into, uh, you know, really digging in and trying to write applications for the new OS and then thus be reporting issues they're running into but we got all these people that aren't actually doing that or interested in doing that it really does drive down the quality because they think they've got these huge numbers and nobody reports anything and statistics wise it's probably just uh just bad news for all of us in general and it's hard to even think about ios 9 going to be announced in literally what four months so i i would like to see uh ios 8 be working a little bit better here and if they're already working on 8.4 i don't i, I barely believe this because we've we've hardly seen 
in recent years anything go beyond dot two here i think in uh forever so it's, it's this is kind of an interesting thing that we've got all these supposedly these you know 8.4 in the pipeline even well here's the thing if we've got all these different iterations that we're talking about and a a new uh, full version of the OS that we're talking about that's really related to bugs and testing and, and, and making it more reliable. Um, you know, certainly one of these could ultimately slip out to that, right? I mean, 8.4, maybe it's an 8.3.1 or something like that that just releases the the version of the uh, the music service if that's indeed going to happen and then 8.4 turns into 9.0 or whatever it is. Um, all sorts of different things that could happen there. So again, this is, this is all based on speculation from people that are working on this stuff, but uh, reporting on this that are saying that they're talking to people that are working on it so good stuff of course but uh don't take it all in you know into this is exactly what's going to happen it's just interesting to hear kind of uh, inside tracks information as far as what uh what apple is doing and what they're at least planning to do at this point yeah but the public beta that really is that is big news because that will really help uh you know get uh, a version of the os out to people that want to test it want to play with it and are the ones that want to report back issues uh to apple as a consumer of the os and not as somebody that's you know a developer so i could see myself downloading it and using it maybe not on my phone um but maybe on the ipad right i mean what you know if you're if you think about what is mission critical for you and what do you have to have obviously the phone is a tough one um i've got bitten by that before with upgrading to a, a point release you know too soon so um you know but with the ipad uh yeah what okay if it if it causes problems or whatever then it's really not that big of a deal i still have my phone that i can fall back on uh so i don't know i i, I may do something like that how about you yeah, exactly. I would definitely uh, consider the iPad. Probably not the phone, but uh, you know, it really ju- it really just depends what what the what the beta has for features and and you know what's uh, what's going on out there, especially what's being reported. Like I would wait a you know wait a week or something to see how uh, the other user experiences are being reported in forums, for example. Yeah, that, and that's that's a great way to go. I mean, obviously, if you want to be that kind of on that bleeding edge, you've got to expect to have issues that come up with uh, you know with these with these early releases. So, uh, good stuff though. I'm glad to hear that that that's actually coming to fruition here. I never did it with the uh, desktop OS because I only have one Mac uh, that I'm currently using, and I don't want to screw this guy up with anything that could possibly go wrong. I want to have it as good as possible when I install an OS. So, that's how I feel about that. Questions and comments today. First one is a question from Patrick. He says, guys. I use an iPhone 5S and an iPad mini, and I've lately found iMessages as well as SMS messages coming in late on my iPad. This can happen uh, when both my iPhone and iPad have good signal. Seems to be inconsistent, though. Any idea why messages, both iMessages and SMS, would not be delivered to both devices at the same time when both are connected to the same strong data connection? The delay can be several minutes long. Sometimes the only way that I will see them come in on the iPad is to open up the application, and then they'll come in. Thanks, and keep up the great work. Patrick. Um, so I, I definitely see this too. Absolutely. SMS happens more often than, than iMessages, but I suppose I do see them there as well. Uh, I will tell you, usually killing the, the messages application and opening it back up will solve the issue of the delay. But like you, if you if I open up the application, I will see them occasionally flow in then. Yeah. And sometimes restarting the device even helps. I, I know this, uh, which doesn't make any sense to me because I thought SMS relay used the iPhone only for the, the, the text messages. But one day I was at my Mac computer at work and text messages were coming in to my Mac computer. You know, the green ones were there were like three minutes before they'd come through on the iPhone. 
and I was replying, having conversations, and then and then every once in a while they'd show up on the screen, you know, minutes minutes later on the iPhone. I'm like, what is going on here? Then they and at that point they weren't even showing up on the iPad. So uh, I, I it's wonky. It definitely is. So these things are crazy. And same with email. Emails are still uh, the notifications for emails uh, via Active Sync are just they're still worthless. Mm. Well, I I will tell you I have seen similar stuff where I will get the text messages on the iPad. I'm not in front of a Mac most of the time, but I get them on the iPad before I get them on the phone. What will I what I will notice though is that I will get the I get my SMS messages through the Verizon Messages application too. So that push notification will come through for that application, but sometimes we'll see a pretty big delay before they actually come through to messages. So it's kind of a it's kind of a weird thing. Um, anyway, to how to fix it? No, I don't have no idea how to fix it other than you know, like I said, killing and restarting the application or restarting the the actual device itself, whether it's the phone or the iPad. Restarting the whole thing altogether will help too. And I wonder if sometimes this uh, the iMessage database. You know how we've seen it grow to gigabytes and gigabytes in size due to pictures and stuff being stored in there now with iOS 8, you can now finally go in there and say, you know, keep messages from either a year ago or up to 30 days. Um, I wonder if that sometimes contributes to some of the slowness because I know my database is uh, it's up there in size. I think I cut it off at a year now, finally, since we can we now have that option. But before I know it was it was pretty big and I'm still sure it's fairly big still. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. I, I think mine is set at a year or two. Uh, I know it is on the phone because the phone, I've got a lot of space on it. But um, on the iPad, actually, it's it's amazing just how over, over time that thing can grow. I mean, it's multiple gigabytes for me like you. Uh, so I, I set it for a year and I think I've had the air for over a year now. It, it would make sense that I would have. So um, it's now so I'm at the point where it's, you know, it's starting to drop some of those videos and, and photos and stuff like that. So that's good. So hopefully that'll stay at whatever ridiculous size it is and not get any bigger. Um, and uh, and ultimately, hopefully that will be kind of how that process gets I'll just air quote here fixed uh, because it's still not probably the best way to go but I, I really don't know how else you do it unless you can make it uh, take you know the the media out and store it somewhere differently so it's easier to manage but either way uh, interesting uh, interesting stuff there and great question there Patrick I'm sure a lot of people are nodding their heads having this exact same issue as you are finally today is a comment from Kevin he says regarding uh, making Android Wear compatible with iOS I wrote you several shows ago that I wanted to see this functionality and while Google has yet to make any of the Android Wear's functionality compatible with Apple's operating system. That's not stopping a developer. Uh, Mohammed Abu Garbe uh, is uh, hacking Android Wear into the latest support notifications from iOS. Uh, well, Kevin, so I, I, I saw the article today, uh, and according to the description here, it works the same way that the Pebble does. It uses Apple's official APIs to send notifications over Bluetooth LE, um, but uh, while this won't require any modifications on the iOS side, there's certainly a, a modified version of Android Wear running on the Y or something has been tweaked in the watch to make that work. The developer posted a video on the hack in action, but there's no reason to believe that um, he's he's doing anything illegitimately here. I would assume getting other things working like applications or syncing of data and Google Now and stuff like that is going to require a little bit more digging into the device itself. Uh, maybe a jailbroken phone with a specific app running on the device could uh, could get us working there. But, uh, but yeah, I, I remember when you wrote in about that and we said, no, this is not going to happen. Apple's not going to want to do this. Uh, certainly, though, they are sending out type, certain types of functionality. Um, and this 
this is the same type of thing where um, in my car, I get my text messages on my navigation screen, right? I mean, it's sending out that type of, of data, but it's not necessarily doing much else, or at least we haven't seen it do anything else up until this point. So we'll keep our fingers crossed for you and for everyone else who's looking to tie an Android Wear device with an iOS device that we'll see something with that. Well, if you have any questions or comments for us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us email to questions at the cell phone junkie.com. If you have an audio comment, you can email that in the who us as well and we will get that on a future show joey thank you very much as always for your time we'll talk to you later thanks for listening for more information about the stories you've just heard visit us at the cell phone junkie.com